Good morning, everyone. Welcome to another edition of our Monday morning live uh, devotionals. You can catch it here on Facebook, if that's where you're at, or on the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. Wherever you find your podcast, seems like everybody's in on it. Now you get on Spotify. I have Amazon Music. Amazon Music has podcasts on it now, too. Apparently, Audible has podcasts. So um, if you don't have a podcast app, they're probably going to quickly show up at your door and force you to have one. So um, you can find us there. We have been uh, working through the F-260 Bible reading plan. We've been kind of following through the book of Acts, Paul's various missionary journeys at this point, and kind of taking a break um, when he is on a journey and he uh, has written a letter to the churches he's encouraging. And so we've been in 1 Corinthians um, the last few days. And today we are in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7. Uh, If you have read that, awesome. If you haven't read that, you could either pause this and read it, or you could listen to this um, and hopefully uh, read it for yourself later. We don't want to do the chewing for you. We want you to chew on God's word and this to just be a supplement for you in in those efforts. And one thing, when you look at uh, 1 Corinthians, what you're really seeing are the articles of incorporation of a church. If there's a town that wants to kind of uh, become, or if there's like a, an area that wants to become a city, they have to incorporate in some way. They have to define who they are, um, how they work, and what that community looks like and what it's bound by. And 1 Corinthians really are is the article of incorporations for the church in Corinth. You're beginning to see how they are to act towards one another. Um, you're beginning to see the basis of their actions, the boundaries of their actions, the conduct of this society of God's church, God's assembly in Corinth. And what we see about this community, um, specifically to today, and as the first Corinthians continues on, we read about the Lord's Supper and um, things like that. Uh, you see that this community is unique and it is distinct from all the other communities. What God does in his church is really to incorporate this embassy of believers in a foreign world. The church is not like any community in our world. It's not like Kiwanis Club. It's not like Sam's Club or Costco or anything like that. The church is unique because of what Christ does in it, which means the members of the church, um, which is interesting because 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, uh, in dealing with really uh, uh, difficult issues that we'll talk about in a moment, it's not writing to the pastor, the elder, the bishop in Corinth, it's actually writing to the whole body. And that's not to say that the church doesn't have those things, but what it is showing um, is that when it comes to matters of church life, the expectation is that the whole church is involved in it, that God has so gifted the priesthood of believers in any local context that to become a member of that church is not to outsource your ministry to the trained professionals, but it's to see the whole of your life as ministry. You and me as church members uh, are called to care for the church, to serve in the church, to lean into messy issues in the church. Um, And there's different levels of responsibility in there. Elders are held accountable um, to those in the flock in the way that a normal member is also held to account, but not to the same level we see in Hebrews. Um, And so this is really unique. And there's a a lot today that shows the uniqueness of the church. And we see this as Paul is writing towards various issues, specific issues in the church. And it would seem that this church has kind of written Paul with this list of questions or issues that they want answered, which is why if you read, there's kind of this time where he's like saying, this is what I say, but not the Lord. This is what the Lord says and not for me. And that's where he's trying to answer their question. And some points he's pointing back to what scripture is clear on. And otherwise he's saying, 
I'm kind of developing this line of thought. And that's not to say he's what he's saying is not scripture. What he's saying is he's developing something that the, the whole corpus of scripture um, has left kind of unaddressed. But as uh, God's apostle here filled with the Holy Spirit is just as true um, in those places. And the primary issue he's writing to, we see in this text, is some pretty nasty issues. This is a summary of what we see. And in chapter 5, we see that there is um, there's really grievous sin in there. There's a man who is sleeping with his mother, and it's being left unaddressed in the church. Not only is it sexual immorality, but it's pretty gross and incestuous sexual immorality that has gone unchecked in God's church. And then we see that this church is also um, bringing their grievances. If they have offenses against one another, um, they're not they're not moving towards one another as Jesus called believers to do when there's an issue. Uh, instead, they're just taking that and going to courts that are on the outside. And that's a problem because he says not that the courts are bad, but that the Christians should be able to, to address the majority of their disputes on their own because they have grace. They've seen forgiveness. They understand um, what it means to actually um, bear with one another in faith, to bring our burdens together, to invite the community in, to help those grieving parties, to pursue reconciliation. And then, so we see the specific issues of sexual immorality in chapter 5. We see issues of lawsuits in chapter 6, where the church deals with lawsuits differently. And then in the back half of chapter 6 and through chapter 7, we begin to see um, Paul's view of the body as part of something which is redeemed by Jesus. Jesus doesn't just redeem our soul, he redeems our body. And we'll talk about that in a minute. And that leads into um, not only sexual immorality, that is what we do, which is harmful, but leads into marriage, what we do, which is God honoring. And in chapter seven, he speaks to single people, married people, engaged people, widows, all these people. Um, and he talks about the gift that God gives you in your relational state and how everything, because our body matters to God, every relational place you could potentially find yourself in, if you have a body, uh, is relevant to God's call um, to glorify the, uh, to glorify him as part of the church. And so that's kind of the summary of what we see in chapters 5, 6, and 7. And so we've been doing three things here. I hope these three things have been helpful in your devotion. I stole this from uh, Amy and G. Joe Joseph, who are our dear friends in California. Uh, but what we do is we, we look three places with a text. We look up. What does this text teach us about God? We look in. What does this text teach us about ourselves? Um, and then we look out. How does this text change the way we live? So, uh, looking up, what do we see in this passage? We see God cares about sin. If I was going to qualify that, God cares about sin in the life of the believers. Well, God cares about sin in the life of anyone. Sin is the reason why God has acted in the gospel. If sin was not a big deal, Jesus did not need to come and die. If sin was not painful, Jesus did not need to come and die. If sin was not messy, Jesus would not have needed to come and die. But because sin is the worst and it harms us, and it mars us, and it destroys us, God has acted in Jesus Christ. And so for believers who claim to have been saved by Christ, um, sin has no place in our lives when it comes to unrepentant um, and stubborn uh, clinging to it. And as we've been working through Acts, we've had discussions on legalism that have kind of manifested itself with circumcision and fulfillment of the law. And there is this sense where we don't want to be legalistic, and that is good. Um, we want to affirm grace, that we are not saved by our works. We're saved by Jesus's works. And yet, 
I think there is a subtle current in Western Christianity um, where actually, if you think about it, our uh, unsaved neighbors and coworkers are often more moral than Christians because they, um, not in a right way, but they understand that they ought to be good people. They ought to pursue what is good and not do what is wrong. But Christians, sometimes in the name of grace, we tend to minimize um, the morality and the implications of redemption because we say Jesus has saved us from it. But what we see in Matthew, when um, the angel is saying to Mary, announcing to Mary that she is pregnant with the Messiah, she says, you'll call his name Jesus and he will save his people from their sins. And that is so important because that shows that redemption saves us from sinning, not for sinning. Sometimes we think that because we're saved, we can sin safely. But there's no, Jesus has not come to save us so that we can sin safely. He has come to save us from sin, to remove us entirely from it. And we see this, um, how God cares about sin in your life, both individually and corporately. Individually, if you look at chapter 6, verses 12 through 15, this is what he says. So he's quoting a popular phrase the church was using at this time when he says, quote, all things are lawful for me. And then he begins on his own but all things are not helpful. Quote, all things are lawful for me. But then he begins to, to counter again, but I will not be dominated by anything. And then he gives another cultural quote. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. End quote. And now he begins to comment again. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? And so here you have these people who are boasting in grace. It's not that they haven't heard the message of grace. It's that they're boasting it. They're saying, because of what Jesus has done, everything is permissible. But Paul says, but not everything is helpful. They say, but everything is permissible. But he says, but you're being mastered by something which is not the gospel. And then they say, God gave me this, this belly, and the belly is for food, and food is for the belly. Wouldn't God want me to do this? I've actually discussed with people who say, who have said, um, if God didn't want me to be interested in this person, then why is he allowing me to be interested in this person? God gave me these hormones. He gave me these eyes to see. Um, obviously, this is a natural thing for me to do. But Paul here gets above that and he says, sure, the food, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, but the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. In other words, what he's saying is in our bodily existence, the chief uh, presupposition, the chief point of understanding we have of what it means to live in our body is that our body is meant first and foremost not to satisfy ourself, but to be satisfied in the Lord and to be satisfied by the Lord and have the Lord be satisfied with our body. Everything about who we are um, matters to God. There's kind of this like um, Greek sense where we, we often think that God is only concerned about the spirit and not about the body. But that is not a Christian view of embodiment. We are, we are this uh, incorporated body and soul. And so all of our physical needs, all of our physical longings, um, all of the things that we can interact with, touch, taste, feel, and enjoy, all of those are meant to be submitted to the worship of God. We are meant to serve not ourself, but our Savior in all of our body, which means if we have been joined to Christ and his body, if redemption is so pervasive that it saves not only our minds and our hearts and our spirits, but our bodies, 
then it is so out of place to serve physical things and not the Savior who saved us. And so God's saying here, no, 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 you've been saved by Jesus. You have been bound to Christ. You don't get to join your body to somebody else or to something else. And so sin matters uh, individually. God is concerned about how you view sin. And because how you view sin actually communicates how you view the extent of Jesus's love and redemption of you. But then we also see corporately, okay? And so you as an individual don't sin, but what do we do when there is sin in the body that is in the church? Well, look at what he says um, when he's speaking about this. Uh, the, the context is this guy is, um, so I'll preface this. Everything that we're about to read is not someone uh, it's not two people who made a mistake, who are convicted by it, who are coming forward and being repentant. Neither is it uh, uh, two people who have sinned and the church has now moved towards them and said, this is wrong. We're going to address this. We're going to talk about this um, and we're going to acknowledge its wrongness and bring the gospel of grace into it. Instead, what's happening is it is openly known that this son and his mother are, or his, his stepmom are having relations uh, with each other. And the church knows it, and the church doesn't do anything about it. In fact, they say, um, he says, you're boasting in it. In other words, they're saying, this is a great church. We are doing exactly what God has called us to. And maybe it's because they're just uh, sweeping us under the rug and acting like it's not a deal. Or maybe they're saying, there's grace for this. There's so much grace for this. Jesus died for the sinners. But look at what um, Paul says in verse, well, <clears throat> in verse one, he says, let him who has done this be removed from among you. And then in verses five or six and seven, we see why. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. In other words, what he's saying, so he's pulling kind of this Old Testament. So Paul's actually quoting Deuteronomy here and a lot of Old Testament um, references. And he's saying, if there's a little leaven in the church, it's going to ruin the whole church. If, if there is some unaddressed, unrepentant, but known sexual immorality or any sort of um, taboo sin in the church, it will slowly ruin the whole church. It will bring this foul flavor, this foul texture to all of it. And what is he saying there? Well, I think there's two ways that he's saying this, the, the purity of the church is important. One, if an outsider comes in and they know this man and this woman, and they see that this is approved as Christian dire, it besmirges Jesus' redemption. If Jesus came to save us from our sin and they see this being unaddressed, they wonder, why do I need this Jesus? If my life could look just like this and be Christian, why do I need to come here? My life already looks like this mess. Um, and so it's a poor witness on the redemption of Christ. But then also, uh, there begins to be this compounding effect that unaddressed sin has on the other members of the church, it begins to bear on them, and it becomes to become. It, it begins to be normalized for them as well. They begin to no longer be shocked at the scandal of sin, but they become comfortable with it. And the more comfortable they get, the more complacent they get, and the more complacent they get, the more apt they are to actually commit these sins themselves. And so this is dangerous. Sin is not a private issue. Sin is a corporate one. And here, what. Um, God is saying, and so he's saying this through Paul, and he's quoting directly Deuteronomy um, at the end of, in, in verse 13, he says, God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. And so God is saying sin is so serious that it might destroy you and it might destroy the whole church. So what do you need to do? You need to discipline the sinner. You need to place them out of God's church. 
And this is where we go from looking up how God views sin. He's very serious about it. How serious? Serious enough, serious enough to send his son to save us from it. Serious enough to redeem our body and our soul and recommission it for the purpose of God's glory. And so to not do that says that you don't actually care about God's love for you, right? We think that sometimes in, in preaching um, grace and licentiousness that we are, and I don't mean grace because this isn't grace. What, what they're doing is not grace. Grace acknowledges sin and acknowledges what Jesus came to do. This is not what they're doing. They are acknowledging that Jesus came to die, but they are refusing to die to Jesus. And that's a big deal. And so um, I lost my train of thought there. It's Monday morning. We're going by the seat of our pants. We're going to begin to look in. Um, and so we ended by looking at God's view of sin on a corporate level. And now we're beginning to look in. How does this change the way we view ourselves? Well, in this text, kind of a pervasive theme that goes through the whole thing is discipline. And that is discipline both in terms of uh, corrective discipline, which is what this specific man is um, being held to account for, to be put out. But then also this discipline that is um, preventative sin, this having control over your body uh, that we see in chapter 6 and chapter 7. And so looking in, uh, I, I want to us to let this text help us understand the connection between the gospel and discipline. And this is really important because we see here um, something that is kind of foreign to us in the modern church, and that is that God is here calling us in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 to be distinct relationally towards confessing believers living in unrepentant sin. So look at what he says here in, in uh, this is chapter 5, verses 9 through 13. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now he has this aside. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing you to not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil from among you. And so the point he's making here is that... Um, if you have someone who's living in unrepentant sin who claims to be a believer, your relationship with them should not look normal. It should not affirm the status quo. Now, we need to be careful, and I love what Paul does here, because we see God's grace in the gospel so clearly in here. Discipline and grace can coexist, because he's saying, don't associate with the, with the sinner, with the sexually immoral person. But then he has this aside in verse 10. He's like, I'm not saying don't associate with non-believers who have a messy life. He says, because if you were to do that, you would have to go out of the world because this world is filled with people who are broken in sin. He, the expectation of Paul is that you actually move towards non-believers who are struggling with these issues. You invite them into your home. You open up your table with them. Why? Because they need the good news of God's grace. They need the gospel shared with them. And if you are too scared to move towards the sin in the life of your unbelieving friends and family, then you are not loving them as Paul has called you to love them. And yet... Paul also, in the name of love, is saying if you have a baptized believer who is a member at your church, as in the context here, who is living in um, unrepentant, ongoing, habitual sin, 
your relationship needs to be distinct. He says, don't even eat with them. And now there's, there's some, some, uh, there, there, there's grace in how you apply that passage. But what does it mean for us? It means if we know people who are wrestling with sins like this that are left unaddressed and unrepented of, um, that we shouldn't act like everything is okay in their life. Why? Because everything's not okay in their life. If they continue with these sins, the Bible says that they will not, that they're proving themselves not to be saved. They are proving that they are not believers. They are loving the darkness instead of the light of Christ, who they say has come to redeem them. And so this is in love that you do this. Um, you should speak to them. You should still be around them. But when you are around them, it is not like, hey, man, let's watch Netflix. Let's, uh, let's you know, let's go out and and uh, grab some food and watch a football game. It is when you are around them, um, you're saying, how are you doing with this? Do you understand the severity of this? Um, what, what, what is it that's not making sense in your mind about the power of the gospel when it comes to this specific sin? And this leads to, and so behind this whole thing is actually um, uh, church discipline that we see in Matthew chapter 18. Um, that, that is this process of, of a believer going to a believer. And then if that doesn't work, a believer taking friends with them to this sinning believer. And if that doesn't work, um, uh, you bring it to the church at this point. And so there's layers that Paul is assuming are present here. And it ends if this person continues to say, this is fine, this is fine, this is fine, this is fine. I don't know what you're talking about. We as the church, you as their brothers and sisters in Christ are meant to say, you are not a believer. There is nothing in your life which shows that you have been saved by this Jesus. Because if you were saved by this Jesus, you would at least want to change, but you show no desire to. You show, and even if you express a desire, there's nothing in your life that says you're willing to. You are not moving towards Christ. You are standing in sin. And this is where, you know, we kind of conflate Jesus' words also in Matthew, right? Don't judge lest you too be judged. But here he says, no, 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 no. Paul says, God will judge the outsiders. You don't need to judge them. Right? That's why you don't, it's, it's, it's not a big deal for you to go have dinner with your neighbor um, who is a drunkard and to share the gospel with them and to be uh, sociable with them at the fence line, whatever that looks like. But he's saying, but you, dear church, you are responsible to judge those who are in the church. You are responsible to make decisions as a witness um, to what is Christian behavior and what is not. And repentance is Christian behavior. Anything that is not repentant is not. But here's where we see the wonderful grace of the gospel. This sounds so harsh. This sounds so, so, um, so impersonal. But look at what he says uh, in verses 4 and 5. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present. So here he's talking. The context of church discipline is not me, even as a single elder, going to someone and saying, uh, you're kicked out of the church. That's not the context. The context is the whole church working together, praying together, gathering all the information we can. So that's, that's the context here. When my spirit is present in the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, you're to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. So what he's talking about there is, as you're saying, um, this is Matthew 18, uh, let him be to you a Gentile or a tax collector. You are saying you are no longer, you are not acting as part of God's church. We are telling you that you are not. We do not believe you to be a Christian. Now why? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. We actually interrupt normal relationships, not because we don't love our brothers and sisters who are struggling, but because we love them, because we want them to be saved. And here is where we're just in Proverbs chapter three yesterday. It says, um, 
Uh, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Be not wise in your own eyes. This is where we need to, to not lean on our own understanding. We need to not be wise in our own eyes. We need to not assume that we know how to love our brothers and sisters in sin better than God knows how to love them. Because sometimes we think, man, if I just continue to invite them in and continue to show them grace and continue to bear with them and they remain unrepentant, that, that, that my love might win them to the gospel. But here God is saying, no, 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 no. Your discipline might lead them to the gospel. That's where my Holy Spirit has promised to work. I have promised to use this as a disruptive thing, as, as is said in Timothy, that others might stand in awe, that this discipline, this relational interruption, that your withdraw from them might show them that they have withdrawn from God, that God is not pleased with them, that their soul might be in danger of hellfire. This is how you love people. And to continue to not address sin is not loving. God calls us to judge these people because he loves them. And this is what we saw in Proverbs 3 yesterday too. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline, nor be weary of his reproof. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. We need to not only be comfortable as God's church with the discipline we experience, but we need to become comfortable with the discipline God has called us to give to those who are around us because we love the church and we love those who are part of the church. And here's again where we see this. How does this not become a haughty, arrogant effort? We'll look at chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. I love that. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so here we have God washing, God redeeming you who were just like them. And so how do we not exercise this kind of discipline in an arrogant way? We understand that that was us until God came and saved us. And how do we exercise discipline in an optimistic way? Because God saved us and he could save them. The same, you are not saved because you are more malleable to God's discipline to call you to Christ. You were saved because God was gracious to do it through his means in his time. And we trust those means when it comes to those around us. This is the basis of discipleship. Um, when we begin to see this, uh, we, we don't become quicker to discipline. We become uh, earlier to discipline, earlier to lean into sin in the lives of those around us so that we don't ever have to get here, Lord willing, because we've addressed this at instance one and not instance 5,624. This is God's grace to us. And we also see in here, um, that he has called us to discipline our bodies. I'm just going to touch on this briefly. Um, so there's, there's this kind of formal discipline that's being applied in chapter 5. But in chapter 6 and chapter 7, there's this discipline of the body that is being stressed. And that's where that food is, not, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And he's saying, but you're meant for the Lord and the Lord is meant for you. And so he says in there also, um, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. And what follows is, you know, he's used the example of food, 
uh, in the previous pastor talking about lawsuits, there's this desire for vindication, for, for having the approval of those on the outside that you are in the right and must get restitution. Um, and then what follows, there's these sexual desires, these longings. And the whole thing that Paul is saying is that you in your body, in all of the desires God has given to you, you must not be mastered by any of them. And that does not mean that we become kind of this aesthetic um, uh, church that seeks to, again, put to death all that is physical in us and think that that is bad and low. And we only seek to become ethereal to kind of find this stoic freedom from the flesh. Instead, we acknowledge the things that God has given us to enjoy in the, in the flesh. When we eat good food, God wants us to eat that good food, to enjoy it and to think, man, how much better is the God who made this? And so he's not saying don't do things that satisfy your body. He's saying don't be dominated by it. Don't be mastered by it. Be mastered instead by God's plan to use you in body and in spirit to love those around you, to proclaim Christ, and to glorify the Lord. We must be mastered by Jesus in all things. And how is that possible? Well, it's possible because look at uh, chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Within you, whom you have from God, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. What is your hope of not being mastered by this? Your hope is that through conversion, you've been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. God is exercising mastery over you. You today, if you're a Christian, if you're one who's thinking, Man, am I the unrepentant sinner in 1 Corinthians chapter 5? Let this be God's restorative discipline to you to see you have exactly what you need in the Holy Spirit in you to turn and repent, to set aside the things that control us and instead to be controlled by Christ. And it takes effort. This is not passive Christianity. This is active warfare, but realizing God's grace to redeem you, to regenerate you, and to own your body through Jesus Christ. What an immense grace. And this is where I want to speak just briefly on what it looks like um, to look out. In uh, chapter 7, we see the current gift of your relational status. I love what Paul says here. Um, he says uh, this in chapter 7, verses 6 and 7. Now, I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all were as myself am, which is single, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. So here's this wonderful thing that Paul's doing. Paul is saying that singleness is a gift from God. Paul is saying here that marriage is a gift from God. For what purpose? Uh, look at uh, chapter 7, verses 29 through 32. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as those who had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. Why? For the present form of this world is passing away. And so what is he saying there? He's saying that um, whether you are married, whether you are single, whether you're married to a believer, whether you're married to an unbeliever, God has given you a gift to live for this day in light of God's eternity, to live for God's glory, to serve God. He says that the, the challenge of a married man is that he's distracted from the things of the Lord. The blessing of a single man is that he can focus on the things of the Lord. And yet the gospel is so big that the married are not less Christian and the single are not more Christian, but instead in unique relationships, they've been given a gift 
each that comes with burdens, a singleness, a single person sometimes wrestles with loneliness, and yet they have a clear purpose of using their time, their talents, and their homes exclusively for service to the Lord. A married person is divided. I, as a husband, I have to care about when I come home at night. I have to... Um, make enough money to care for my family and my children. I have to do all of those things. And yet God has given me a helpmate and a family to serve God in his glory. I'm equipped in that. And then even he, he looks here to unbelievers in marriage and he says, you in that, you are not ill-equipped. In fact, the Holy Spirit is this third spouse, so to speak, who helps you speak God's grace to the, to the unmarried spouse. And he says, who knows, wife, you might be the one who saves your husband. Who knows, husband, you might be the one who saves your wife in every area of your life. Whatever relationship status you are in today, it is a gift from God that is given to you so that you might serve his glory. What does that look like for you today? For you who are single, how does your free time, your free finances, um, your free whatever it is, how are you using that to serve the Lord? For you who are married, how does your spouse, how does your helper in the gospel, how does that help you serve God in a way where that spouse is not there to simply satisfy and comfort you, but to actually co-labor with you as Adam and Eve were meant to, to expand God's kingdom? And for you who perhaps are married to a non-believer, how, what does it look like for you to partner with the Holy Spirit to continue to be a winsome witness to your husband and to your kids? For God has so equipped you in this time for this. And brothers and sisters, whether you're single, married, or married to a non-believer, the church is meant as Paul is intending to come alongside you and to work for that glory and to help you with all of our strengths and in all of our weaknesses. So let's pray together this morning. Lord Jesus, we pray that you help us have eyes to see our sin as you have told us to see our sin. We pray that you um, help us to, Lord, we, we do not want to conflate all discipline with this final discipline of putting people out of the church, but Lord, make us eager to discipline in those earlier stages so that our church might be spared those ultimate stages and be spared those ultimate stages so that that individual, that sinning brother and sister might be spared ultimate discipline, not from the church, but from Christ himself. Lord, I thank you that we do all of this, not because we've lost the gospel, but because we love the gospel and we know that we were saved from sin and the gospel saves us from sin. So there is immense hope for the sinner. We pray that we use our gifts to serve you. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. Thanks, guys. Have a good Monday. We'll see you later.